This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. Welcome to this week's Lens Me Your Ears. We go into critical black mass as we look at a current gangster film and also the history of the mobster in the movies. So Stephen, if we don't, uh, if we get through this podcast without making some kind of like uh, doing some kind of accent, uh, we'll be lucky. <laughs> yes. Don't you think? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And and I would like to, uh, in advance, apologize if, if somehow we, we slip into some sort of some, some sort of accent that we've heard while watching a gangster movie. I'll try not to do a Pacino. We'll, we'll at least try and have that much restraint. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, we decided, because it's such a huge genre in films, generally, uh, and we looked at Black Mass, and we're like, okay, well, clearly we have to talk about gangster movies. But uh, we decided decided to restrict our focus to American gangster movies just just to give us a little bit of structure and we're going to save British gangster movies for when legend opens the uh, the craze movie uh, with Tom Hardy playing both both of the the British gangster brothers um, so we went to see black mass which uh, which was a movie that I didn't love uh, but I still and I recognized how <laughs> indebted it was to the the films that have the better movies that have come before mm. by Scorsese. Uh, I, I liked I liked parts of it. I certainly enjoyed the cast that were great. But uh, but I, it just felt it felt a little ordinary to me. Yeah, it's really weird. I felt left kind of flat by this movie too, and I was dis, you know I was disappointed. Uh, you know, disappointed. Uh, <laughs> sorry, couldn't resist. Um, that, that it just, you know, I was, I loved the material. I was interested in the character, the whole history of it, and but there was, there was something in its tone or just the, the kind of even handedness uh, that, that didn't vary in its pacing or, you know, there, there, there was, there was no real rhythm to it. Um, you know, there's no real big showboaty kind of scene or scenes in the film to kind of elevate it. You know, like. You know, aside from people getting shot in parking lots, um, you know, those seem to be the the highlights. There's yeah. The, um, it, it needed a little more uh, pizzazz or something. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, but it certainly works in parts. I think the actors do a heck of a job. Um, uh, certainly Johnny Depp playing this notorious uh, Boston gangster, Whitey Bulger, gives one of the best performances that he's given in like the last decade or so. Uh, you know, which is reason enough to want to want to see it. But um, you know, I feel that maybe the, the the direction let him down a little bit in terms of its uh in in terms of the kind of vibrancy that I think it needed to tell a proper gangster tale. Yeah, and I think part maybe it's because they are trying to tell a true life story and they mm. didn't have as much freedom to to uh, go with fiction here. I mean, they're trying to it's a biopic basically about a guy who, you know, it's funny the the film front loads it his his presence and and we see a lot of him at the beginning uh, and I I personally had a little trouble with the makeup and the and the contacts mm. I, I found it a little distracting how made up he was I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like he was a real person I felt like he was an alien visiting <laughs> there were times yeah. when I was just like it just took me out of the film like and every other Johnny Depp yeah <laughs> exactly he's, he's using the grease paint to give him a little bit of advantage and you know that's not to say that the performance was bad I thought the performance was great but I felt like he, he when we never really understood why he was so driven to be so power hungry, and and I found that it was interesting because as the film went on, it became more it became more about the Joel Edgerton character. He became the lead, and he became the hub for the the, the plot. Uh, he's the FBI agent who grew up with James Bulger, and uh, and then brings him in uh, basically as an informant, and and his career soars along with Bulger's success. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he tries to protect him uh, at the end because the loyalty of the of of the streets and where you're coming from supersedes his his loyalty to his job pretty much is is the way it works but but yeah a bulger is is this like elemental force in the film who scares everyone and everyone's kind of reacting to the stuff he's doing but uh but he he isn't the center of the film and and I found that an interesting kind of problem and tension um and I thought well you know you've got this story of this guy who is one of the most notorious 
gangsters in American history who was on the FBI most wanted list for like a decade. Yeah. Uh, and his brother is a senator, like one of the most powerful people <laughs> in the state. And you have two scenes of them together. Like I felt like the the filmmakers really buried the lead here. <laughs> like the you know you get you get. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch to play the brother. You've got these incredible actors and they hardly are in the movie together. Well, I, I get the feeling that might have some correlation in real life. I think I think in real life uh, the Cumberbatch character would have probably wanted to distance himself from his brother's activities. Well, yeah, he so, certainly tried, but, but um, I, I guess I just felt like from a, from a movie perspective, uh, the, the, it, I wished that it was more about that relationship. Yeah, the, maybe one more solid scene of the two of them together that's not just like a family dinner or whatever mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it, it, needed, it just needed something... Uh, with a little more oomph, I guess, uh, to, to kind of elevate it. Um, and, but aside from the, the tone of the film, which is kind of a vague thing, like it, just the fact that it just, it kind of ground me down over the course of the film because it was so samey from start to finish. Um, the Edgerton character I had a real problem with. I, I, I thought that he was overplaying it a bit. I mean, he's an Australian actor playing a Boston character. So there's, you know, it's, it's going to be a, an accent is going to come to the fore and it's going to be kind of prominent and mm-hmm. and and I I, th- I thought he, he kind of plays the character this guy's supposed to be an FBI agent and he plays him as such a mook uh, <laughs> that uh, I just felt like it was like how did this guy become an FBI agent like I can't see this guy getting out of the academy you know or getting off Quantico he's he's he just seems like such a mug and I, I'm guessing that the real life version of his character would have had a lot more smarts and he he doesn't seem very bright to me uh, throughout mm-hmm. this film and I'm you know obviously. You know, he did what he did and eventually he got caught, but um, it, he just seems so obvious and it's so overplayed the whole the whole way through. I'm surprised that, you know, that Kevin Bacon, who plays his, his boss at the FBI, didn't just grab him by the scruff of his neck and toss him into a cell like within the first five minutes. He's yeah, so transparent. Yeah. Um, so I, I felt that character was either was both underwritten and overplayed at the same time, which is kind of a deadly combination. So that, that you know, that's that's my most concrete uh, problem that I probably had with yeah. the film. And I like Joel Edgerton as an actor, but, but uh, I thought that... Um, you know, he was either overdoing it or just didn't have enough to work with. Yeah, I agree, and and I, I felt there were there was a lot of great performers in the film, but they don't all get much to do. Mm. Uh, I will say a, a shout out to one of my favorite actors working today, Peter Sarsgaard. He plays this uh, <laughs> Florida He's uh, coked out dude. Uh, he gets a couple of great, great scenes and, and uh, that are worth seeing. Yeah, he brings in a lot of energy, uh, Sarsgaard, and, and it, which is funny because like in some other films that he's in recently, he's a lot more laconic. So here he actually gets to play kind of the coked up weirdo from Florida and, and actually kind of bring some zazz into his scenes. Um, I guess another problem is probably that we've had a pretty good Whitey Bulger inspired character in Jack Nicholson in The Departed. Right. And, uh, you know, it's hard to wipe the memory, even though he's not like in every scene in that film, he certainly, uh, he certainly is a presence in that movie. And so that's kind of what Depp has to, to live up to. But, uh, again, I didn't have the problems with the makeup and so on. Um, because obviously I think he was called Whitey probably because of his super pale eyes. Sure. But, yeah. um, uh, that didn't bother me so much cause it was, you know, certainly a lot less, uh, ornate than his pirate makeup or his Wonka makeup. Fair enough, but uh, yeah, I still it's still, for me personally, I just I couldn't see past it sure. uh, a lot of the time uh, though there were scenes uh, where there's, well, there's a particular scene where he, he is basically intimidating Julianne Nicholson's character right. uh, and in this bedroom scene, and it, it's it, it's Depp at his creepiest, like I don't know that yeah, I've ever seen him that, seen that, really well. that threatening before as he is in that moment and uh, and I gotta give him lots of credit for that, there are, if there are good stuff in the, in the film, a lot of it has to do with his energy, uh, and and you know I think I think a lot of people who enjoy gangster movies might enjoy this. There's I think it hits enough of those genre moments to to at least recommend it to people who are hardcore gangster fans uh, and and who enjoy uh, what basically the the genre as it exists today is largely due to Coppola and Scorsese and I think those are the two people that the film owes a lot to um, in fact it might be a good moment now to talk about how to define a gangster movie uh, especially in, in an American context now we've gotten used to sort of immigrant story and an ethnic quality to a lot of the gangster movies usually it's it's a neighborhood organized crime family um, but mostly I think at the bottom of that is stories of desperate men 
yeah. you know, crime being a way of to success where 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 with you know compromised ethics and 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 loyalty, loyalty to where you're from. That comes up again and again in gangsters mo- gangster movies. It's like like even even when the cops are involved, uh, like for instance in in Black Mass or the, the law enforcement, uh, if the fact that they're from a certain neighborhood. Is plays a big part in whether or not you can trust them to do their jobs. Yeah, the whole blood is thicker than uniforms. I <laughs> yes. guess is is, is a, <laughs> it does come up in these films from time to time, and I, I guess it is that whole thing where you kind of go into a life of crime, you know, out of desperation or out of sense of survival, and uh, it, it's uh, it's in it's it's the the lifeblood that runs through all of these films, even into films like uh, like Once Upon a Time in America, which is. You know, kind of a, this ornate Italian spaghetti Western version of an American gangster epic, um, uh, oddly enough, made by Italians, but about Jewish Jewish, Jewish gangsters, gangsters played yeah, by yeah. people like Robert De Niro, James Woods. <laughs> um, you know, very odd mix, but a very powerful film. Um, uh, but uh, you know, we've got a lot of these to talk about. So I guess yeah, should, yeah. I mean, I I think it's it's important to to mention the kings of the genre that most people know. Certainly, Once Upon a Time in America is one of them, mm-hmm. uh, and and The Departed, which you mentioned, which is a remake of a Hong Kong gangster picture called in- Infernal Affairs. Now, now we again there. <laughs> if we went off internationally, there would be a lot of movies we could talk about. If we went to Hong Kong, we do a whole podcast on that, oh, and, maybe, sure. and maybe we will. <laughs> uh, but 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 certainly uh, keeping it to American, the, the big names, The Godfather, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, and certainly other Tarantino films like uh, Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown and uh, True Romance, uh, which he scripted, uh, with Tony Scott directed, The Untouchables, Scarface. Um, yeah, these are the movies I think most people would say are the the great modern gangster pictures. Yeah, and it's funny how some of, some of them are kind of these low-level kind of hit-and-run kind of quick thrill kind of gangster movies and then you've got the kind of the high opera of, of like The Godfather and Goodfellas and the, yeah. the films that kind of take that subject matter and really ele- elevate it to the kind of the height of cinematic uh, art form it, it's it's amazing how the, the, the gamut of, of filmmaking runs with this single topic you know that, that you know you can really get down and dirty with it or you can take it someplace I, I and you know Black Mass I think is trying to have the best of both worlds in that sense that it's, it's trying to come across as kind of a high art approach to the topic but in a way that we've already kind of seen a bunch of times before yeah I, I agree uh, and so you know it's a good jumping off point but yeah. uh, but uh, now, now there are things about uh, Black Mass that reminded me of some of the classic, the genre movie, uh, gangster movies, uh, going back to the golden age, if there was such a thing of gangster movies, the 30s and the 40s. Um, I watched White Heat, uh, which um, Jimmy Cagney played a psychopathic character who has a very fond attachment to his mother. <laughs> really uh, psychotic, and it's a, it's a great it's a great gangster movie, and it but it, it sort of represents the tail end of that era. And I, I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about some of those those 30s gangster movies you may have seen more of them than I have things like like Angel with Dirty Faces or A Public Enemy that kind of thing well yeah what White Heat is kind of odd and that that type of film had kind of fallen out of favor by that point I mean it's mm-hmm. pretty late in the 40s and uh, you know that initial cycle of gangster films at least the talkies because there were there were some some organized crime films even going back to W.D. Griffith and Musketeers of Pig Alley like you know there was clearly you know this concern of mob crime and in, in urban Urban areas as these urban cities kind of swelled with uh, with uh, new populations that uh, it became a concern even going back into the you know the time of the First World War. But uh, where it really exploded was in was in the early 1930s with the coming of sound and with the coming of these really charismatic uh, stage actors uh, like like Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson and then Humphrey Bogart. I mean these you know the, the the old silent actors had kind of fallen by the wayside for the most part, or a lot of them had. Um, and these guys came in and they just had these stage honed personalities that were just kind of bursting off of the screen. Um, you know, often inspired by, by real life, uh, people like public enemy, uh, with, uh, with Jimmy Cagney was inspired by a guy named Jaime Weiss, uh, who was a, a kind of a big time crook in, in Chicago. And was apparently the only guy that Capone was actually afraid of, uh, you know, um, you know, he was part of the Bugs Moran, the Irish gang. He was half Polish, half Irish, hence the, the goofy name, Jaime Weiss. And, 
you know, he was eventually rubbed out by Capone, but he was this very charismatic but very terrifying kind of Irish-American uh, uh, gangster in Chicago. And, uh, you know, they, they basically just took the stories, changed off, off the headlines and changed the name because these were in the paper every day, like the, all their exploits, and it seemed like it was going unchecked at that time, at least, uh, you know, prior to uh, the repeal of Prohibition. So those stories just became translated to the, the early 30s. Um, you know, Little Caesar is more or less Al Capone, although it ends differently than the Capone story did. But, you know, in that case, he's Italian and, um, you know, kind of bullies his way to the, the top of uh, the organized crime world until he, you know, eventually has his his fall. And, and uh, you know, what did these early movies in, of course, was the production code, um, which said you couldn't go glorify crime and you couldn't show police officers in a negative light and all this kind of stuff. And that kind of ended that first cycle of, of gangster movies pretty quickly. Scarface, the original one, the Howard Hawks one with Paul Muni is another example of a just pure, you know, criminal id unleashed on the screen. Right. I mean, and <clears throat> these films are kind of, you know, shocking in how they put it out there, you know. Um, and then that, that was quickly withdrawn. And then you, so you had Jimmy Cagney going from playing gangsters to playing G-Men, you know, right. and uh, in a film made with the cooperation of the FBI to glorify the FBI's efforts to track down criminals like, uh, you know, Dillinger and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the tide seemed to change pretty quickly. Um, and it seems to me that the subject matter of crime dramas, which were, you know, represented by these gangster movies in the 30s, became more, they became more relationship-based, they became moodier, and in post-war it was more about noir and detective stories. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think, and I think, that, you know, maybe that trend ran its course. You know, I mean, Capone was in jail and a lot of these guys were long dead and people stopped caring about them so much. But, you know, in the early 30s, it was still fairly fresh in their minds from just a few years before when, uh, you know, especially the Chicago antics, uh, you know, were in the paper every day. But, um, you know, the, and then after the war, we get that subtle shift towards... Uh, this awareness of organized crime as opposed to these kind of, you know, Tommy gun wielding psychopaths <laughs> running oh. wild in the streets or whatever. I mean, organized crime goes back to the, the rise of people like Capone and, and uh, the Irish mobsters in Chicago and so on and murder incorporated and, uh, you know, Arnold, the stuff, you know, the stuff we've seen in boardwalk empire, basically, sure, sure. um, you know, which laid out in kind of a quasi fictional, um, real, uh, historical kind of way. Um, but, uh, yeah, the whole idea of syndicates and organized crime and crime being like a business, we see that creeping into films in some film noirs and, and also like crime procedurals. It's sometimes hard to define the line between yeah, the two. it's a little bit gray zone there. Yeah, sure, because, sure. you know, obviously a lot of film noir involved detectives and criminals and that sort of thing. And then some are just straightforward, you know, uh, dragnet style portrayals yeah, of but, crime procedural. But then you've got like cops and, and, uh, detectives and, and cr- criminals. And sometimes they're, they're just thieves and what have you. Uh, uh, if, if drugs and organized crime come in, then you could probably define it as a gangster movie, but, but really that's, that's a different kind of thing. Like I wouldn't call uh, heat, which is definitely a, a cops and robbers kind yeah. of movie, a gangster movie necessarily. Exactly. But then, uh, you know, into the sixties, you start to, you know, the things get a little more sophisticated, uh, even before the Godfather comes along. I, I, I thought of uh, Point Blank, sure, which is uh, one of my all-time favorites. Is Lee, Lee Marvin? Uh, I think John Borman directed, and uh, Lee Marvin uh, is trying to get back the money that is owed him by his fellow gang members that double-crossed him basically after right. a job. Sure, and he just makes his way up the chain, and and you see like all how crime has become bureaucratized as he makes his way from one stooge to another. Right, just trying to get the money back <laughs> that it was owed him from this job, and and. Uh, you know, at every turn, they're just, you know, they're, he's just this force of nature, mm-hmm. basically, just bludgeoning his way until it gets to the very top. You know, and if, if they had just given him his money, they would have saved themselves a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, but that's, you know, this kind of like the brute denial that, it, you know, is seems to be the essence of staying in power. Yes. And he just like t- tackles that system from the inside out. And it's kind of, it's great to see. And, uh, you know, it's certainly unlike anything anyone had seen up to that point. Yeah, Point Blank is is a great uh, example of that. And I guess you could also probably say Bonnie and Clyde had, uh, you know, deals with gangsters. I mean, they're more of a Robin Hood kind of rural thing. But uh, but there is, because th- they were they were folk heroes. Yeah. But, but it's it's gangsterism, certainly. Uh, and and a lot of violence. And, and, uh, and then on the British side, 
side, which we'll discuss as I mentioned in a separate separate uh, podcast. But uh, what bring, comes to mind from that period is Get Carter, another force oh, of nature yeah. character. Uh, you know, fighting his way to justice and and we're getting what he wants basically with a gun and an attitude. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I think Godfather was the moment where where everything changed. It's huge success. Also as as uh, legitimizing uh, a genre in a, in terms of almost a prestige film, uh, everyone talks about it. I mean, even now, it's kind of people bow down before these the film, the first and the second second version of uh, the second edition of the Godfather, Godfather Part Two. Uh, and and when I watched um, Pritzi's Honor from 1983, I felt like it, it's so much lighter than The Godfather. <laughs> this is John Huston's gangster movie starring his daughter, Angelica Huston and Jack Nicholson. And uh, and it really does actually, uh, it's one of those few gangster movies where where um, a woman woman really uh, is is well represented. There's not a lot of, most of these stories are about men. And, it's, and so in gangster movies, you don't see a lot of great roles for women generally. And in this one, well, uh, Angelica Huston won an Academy Award for her role, Best Supporting Actress for that for that uh, movie and she she's great in it uh, and she becomes very manipulative and she actually is a force for the for what happens in the plot when she decides she wants to get back at uh, Charlie Partana uh, Nicholson's uh, character who's a who's a not too bright hitman in 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 his, Nicholson's career he doesn't play a lot of dumb guys but he's great no. in this where he stuffs his upper lip and uh, and he just kind of like you know he he takes on this this character that we haven't seen him play before, uh, and he's really good in it. And so is Kathleen Turner, who at the time was was a real growing force in American cinema, uh, a sort of femme fatale in some movies like Body Heat. Body Heat, yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, Warshawski. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, but she, uh, you know, even even in. Um, uh, romancing the Stone, you know, she she was a star, and she's so amazing in the film, and it, it is it's a wonderful film, but it's in some ways I feel like it's it's uh, it's it's not uh, it's a playful homage to The Godfather in the way it's playing with some of those tropes that after ten years or so people immediately recognize the yeah. Italian crime family and w- William Hickey as the crime boss is unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's so great. In that film. His voice is unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I I haven't watched that film in quite some time, and and that that. Immediately came back to me. It's how great he was. This, this kind of gasping, and I, you know, I don't think he was nearly as old as he plays in that film because he was around for a little while after that. But he looks like he's about to keel over. Yeah, yeah, he looks like he's about ninety-nine years old. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, Pritzi's honor is a total joy, and the the gist of it basically is that. Uh, Nicholson plays Partana, who is this made man in the Pritzi family, and he's a hitman. He gets things he gets things done, and uh, he protects the honor of the family. And he falls in love with a woman who may have stolen from the family, <laughs> and she also happens to be a hit person herself. Uh, and so, so there's a lot of flying back and forth across the country because the Pritzis are centered on the east coast, and uh, Kathleen Turner's characters is on the west coast. And uh, it's funny because they just basically point the plane and the, the scenes of the flying scenes it's the same plane either going one direction or the other <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's an unusual film because Houston wasn't known for comedy either um, and and I don't think he'd done a straight up uh, crime drama in quite some time so it was kind of interesting to see him revisit you know the the subject matter of his youth in films like uh, Key Largo and uh, The Maltese Falcon and, and quite effectively you know it's, it, it kind of rejuvenated his career in some ways because he'd been on the skids for a while there through the through some uh, rather poor choices in the early 70s <laughs> gangster movies open that I absolutely love and I feel like I, I'd love to talk about here. Uh, one of them is Abel Ferrara's King of New York which may be is Christopher Walken in the lead and maybe his most Walken-esque <laughs> performance and he's Frank White who's a gangster recently released from prison and he, be- he begins kind of an, a campaign, a Robin Hood campaign to raise money for city projects, particularly a hospital that has been cut uh, funding cuts that we're going to have to close the hospital uh, and he it's an, a wonderfully stylish movie and I can't remember if we mentioned it during our New York movies podcast but I think it came up but not yeah. in detail yeah it really it really is a gorgeously shot film 
looking at New York at night and uh, you know it's the tail end of the 80s and there's a lot of 80s style there but not in an annoying or campy way that sometimes the 80s seem like when you look back at it now uh, it's full of actors who would go on to great careers Lawrence Fishburne Steve Buscemi Wesley Snipes David Caruso and uh, Victor Argo as the cop as the mm-hmm. sort of the guy in charge uh, Giancarlo Esposito it's like a who's who of tough guy actors who would go on to leading leading careers uh, again not a lot for the women in the cast do um, too much too many of them are collateral damage but uh, but it is it is in terms of walking just chewing up the scenery and being a force a force of nature there's an expression that keeps coming up in this podcast yeah he's really unhinged he's, in this film I, I you know Abel Ferrara is one of those filmmakers I'm kind of hot or cold on like I, I've seen films of his that I've greatly enjoyed and others that made me want to put my fist through a screen um, <laughs> yes you know, I, it's, I'm it's, with you there sure I, I don't know what it is that turns one film one way and one the other but uh, you know I a couple of ones a couple of them have Matthew Modine who's not one of my favorite actors in them so that doesn't help but in this case everything seems to be working like it's just a great cast a very smart and snappy script and and Walken just allowed to just kind of cut loose in a way that uh, doesn't always happen like it's rare that he gets a starring role he usually gets these character parts it's true and it's it's hard to tailor a film around him but uh, in this case uh, you know it works perfectly and he's he's kind of just and, and and he's well matched by the cast. I think everybody seems to sort of bounce off him in just mm-hmm. the, the appropriate way, and and everything works. I I haven't seen this in a, in a long long time, but I just remember just just watching him move and 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 just the way he moves through a scene and you know his body language is incredible. Yeah. Like he just really is on top of his game in this film. He is. He's famously. Uh, a- song and dance man from theater mm-hmm. days and uh, he always tries to put a little bit of dance in all of his films apparently and in this one it's it's prominent when he just gets out of jail and he comes back to his his sort of pad his beautiful palatial apartment in Manhattan and and uh, his 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 droogs <laughs> basically <laughs> show up and it's uncertain at first what their relationship is there's a lot of tension in mm-hmm. the film uh, in the moment and uh, and then you discover that they're all you know are pals and uh, and they have a big laugh about it and he, he puts a little bit of dancing uh, swivel hip dancing in that scene yeah it's a uh, it's walking at his most dead-eyed and also at his most explosive and uh, and I uh, but as a gangster film it is it is exceptional and uh, would recommend it strongly now also uh, from that year was State of Grace. Uh, this is Irish gangsters in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Sean Penn plays Terry Noonan, who's an old, old, old guy from the neighborhood who's been away and no one really knows where he's been and he's not really saying it. He shows up, <laughs> but he gets o- welcomed back with open arms from his childhood friend, Jackie, played by Gary Oldman, who's really on fire in this film. Now, uh, Jackie's older brother, Frankie, played by Ed Harris, he's in charge of the mob at this point, and Jackie's sister, Kathleen, is played by Robin Wright and she and uh, Terry Noon and Sean Penn's character have a sort of they were I guess first loves Mm -hmm. so so it's about a guy coming back to the neighborhood and getting back into the business but uh you know, there's not there's something that's not quite right because the way that Terry is introduced, uh, he he does something up in the Bronx with John Turturro, and and you know that there's something there's something kind of amiss about that, and it won't take you long to figure out what's actually happening. Uh, there's a great soundtrack. Uh, Phil Joanu directed the film, and he's known well known for having uh, uh, directed Rattle and Hum, the U2 concert movie. And so there's U2 on the soundtrack. There's early Sinead O'Connor, the sort of Irish uh, connections uh, for. The, this community of Irish Irish gangsters in in New York is great. There's lots of again a lot of story about loyalty, about loyalty to your neighborhood neighbors, to your friends, and whether that trumps your job. And and and, uh, and uh, Burgess Meredith has a great cameo. <laughs> yeah, this film really kind of revived the Irish gangster side of things after it had been a lot of Italians for the most part in. Uh, you know, from Godfather up through all the Scorsese films and and uh, you know. Uh, I guess uh, Cubans in Scarface, so it, it it was it had been a very Latin kind of mobster environment, and uh, and this this film kind of brought back the uh, the Irish mob in a big way for the first time in in years. So uh, you know, I'm not saying that's a great thing for for Irish stereotypes, but but you know, the whole notion of that organized crime. I mean, it obviously carries on into things like Black Mass and so on. So you know, that, that's definitely a thread that's continued to this day. Um, but it's yeah, I mean these guys would rarely get roles as good. These act Ed Harris and and uh, Gary Oldman, you know, roles that suited them so well and that they could just play perfectly without 
you know, having to overact or rely on <laughs> less than stellar dialogue. This, this film works on, on a lot of different levels. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd love to revisit it and, and just see how well it holds up. And I, I'm going to assume that it would hold up pretty well. Um, you you know, mentioned it's coming out on Blu-ray. It's, uh, yeah, Twilight Time are putting it out. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sorely, I mean, their discs are kind of expensive compared to everything else in the market, even Criterion's to a certain degree. But uh, the uh, this is definitely something I'd, I'd want to rewatch. And I think it would hold up pretty well. Probably better than, say, Boondock Saints. Yeah. Where, which is, you know, kind of like the the connection probably in between this film and, and something like Black Mass. It's Well, uh, one of the things that this film has over Boondock Saints, and uh, no offense to films shot in Toronto, but but uh, <laughs> Black, uh, but um, uh, yes, State of Grace was shot on location in New York City, and it really feels like a New York movie, whereas uh, Boondock Saints has a scene in a diner on Dundas uh, <laughs> in Toronto that I used to frequent all the time, which I thought was awesome at the time, saying, hey, I, I sat in that booth where that guy shot. But, you know, there's, there is that... Uh, that feeling that that I think it was standing in for maybe Boston, uh, you can tell. Like you don't, you can't, you can't quite get away from from. Uh, you don't get quite as much of a sense of the place in in films where that that that's happening. Yeah, that whole thing where opening helicopter shot, whatever city it's set, and then that's it. That's yeah. all you ever see. That's right. It's like, man, I gotta get a job as one of those helicopter film pilots. They seem yeah. to get a lot of work. Or or buy <laughs> buy a, a drone these days. That's those guys are that's getting true. all the work these days. Um, so I think. I think there'll probably come a time when we'll do a Coen Brothers uh, podcast, certainly when their next movie opens, which I think is called Co- Hail Caesar. Yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, it's you coming know, it's up. in production so. now, I think. So. Yeah, so, so in 2016. Uh, but my favorite, probably my favorite Coen Brothers movie is a gangster movie, and they've done a few. Obviously, Fargo is kind of a gangster movie. Uh, and uh, But Miller's Crossing is something. It, I remember it came out in 1990, and uh, it came out right around the time of Goodfellas and it kind of lived in the shadow of Goodfellas that year. I think I think Goodfellas got all the acclaim and uh, and Miller's Crossing was more the cult right. success. But over time Miller's Crossing has 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 an enormous following as one of the great Coen Brothers films. And this there's a there's this is their third film and it's a it's a classic. They may never better. It's it may be my favorite gangster movie. And if value is measured through rewatches, which I've seen the movie probably ten times, yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, it has this convoluted plot. I remember the first time I saw it was, which was in Toronto, and I remember scratching my head the first twenty minutes trying to figure out what the hell was going on. <laughs> Who's Mink? Uh, Who's Mink? And yeah, characters. <laughs> Wasn't <laughs> Steve Buscemi in this? I could have sworn he was. Yeah. Um, then there's characters, gangster speak that you sort of have to tune your ears into understanding. Thanks to Miller's Crossing, I now know what the high hat means. Oh, yeah. I know what what's the rumpus is something I use from time to time. I do not use, however, use the expression twist, but that's probably <laughs> no. for the best. But it's funny because some of this was actual slang and some of the stuff they mixed, they made up themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a weird hybrid of like genuine kind of criminal slang and from the 30s and, and and stuff that they just made up for pure enjoyment pure, yeah own. which is what one of their gifts for sure yeah um, now the story is basically this an unnamed American town in the 30s there's a power struggle between the Irish mob and the Italian mob now Leo is the the head of the Irish uh, uh, mob and pretty much runs the town he's played by Albert Finney in a great one of his greatest roles uh, he's in a supporting role but really an amazing every time he's on screen it's incredible uh, he's in charge and his right hand man Tom played by Gabriel Byrne is uh, is basically giving him advice. Whether he takes it or not is 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 yet to be decided. Um, now Tom is sleeping with Leo's girl Verna, played by Marsha Gay Harden, and Verna's brother Bernie Burnbaum, John, uh, who's John Turturro. Turturro right? uh, he gets protection from Leo, even though he owes money to the Italian mob. Played and the leader of the Italian mob is played by John Polito. That guy's name is Johnny Casper. If you're following so, <laughs> along so far, and Johnny Casper's right hand man is Eddie Dane, played by J. E. Freeman. A truly terrifying performance. Uh, now the Dane and Bernie are also both chummy with a guy named Mink who is played by Steve Buscemi in a single scene. It's funny. He's a character everyone talks about all the time, and we only get to see him once. Um, now, the, of course, uh, this is uh, undercover, and no one really knows. You sort of you sort of piece these character relationships together through this 
unbelievable labyrinth and plot. And uh, but it is a complete joy to figure out how they all relate. And and I and I love that you never quite understand Tom's motivations. Uh, he's loyal to Leo, but he's in love with Verna. Why is he doing what he does? <laughs> and I don't think we entirely understand, even by the end, why it, what it is that he what really motivates him to do what he does. Because a twist ain't worth a plug nickel. No, I, <laughs> I don't know. I saw this twice the week it came out, just in order to figure it out. And uh, luckily, uh, right around the time it came out, I was actually on a big Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett kick. I was reading all their books, and uh, and this is kind of. I mean, Miller's Crossing is kind of a loose conglomeration of uh, the Glass Key and. Uh, uh, ran, uh, random Harvest, Red, Red Harvest, Harvest sure, by yeah. uh, by Dashiell Hammett, which has never properly been turned into a film, just weirdly adapted into samurais and cowboys, and so on, and then readapted into gangsters for Last Man Standing, but but uh, never given it its proper due, um, and so so this is about as close as we'll ever get, I think, to someone doing it, but basically about like a a lone operator who pits these two sides against each other. Um, in both cases in one case it's mobsters and the other is kind of political bosses and um so you're getting those kind of two sides uh, of it uh here they just kind of take all those elements and kind of squish them together and then into their own kind of story frame line and, and like you say all the interpersonal relationships that's all the coen brothers for sure sure, sure. Uh, you know the plot structure kind of dashiell hammity but you know, obviously, because they borrowed liberally from two or three different sources, they can claim it as their own. I guess it's research. They borrow <laughs> yeah. from enough places. Um, and uh, yeah, luckily, uh, this film, when, it, uh, when I saw it when it came out, and it was pushing all these buttons that I had set up uh, from reading those books around that time. So uh, uh, it was a real pleasure to see that kind of mapped out on the film. So it was just that weird hybrid of, of something that really familiar with this kind of new attitude and, and really bravura filmmaking, the yeah. scenes, the hat blowing through the forest and yeah. the, the, uh, the machine, was it the machine gun dance scene? Yes. Or, you know, like yes. where, 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 where basically Leo is being, uh, is the, 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 the being the ambushed, ambushed at his home. And, uh, and he still is a poet with a Tommy gun. Yeah. That scene <laughs> is, is, uh, one of the Coen's best for yes, sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I saw this vision of Sam Raimi as <laughs> the, the machine gun maniac in, in one of the shootout scenes right and, you know they're they're good friend yes the, the yes. director has a <laughs> like you spot him right away he's just so obvious as this grinning machine gun uh ghoul or whatever it is yeah. he's doing uh and and for such a wordy picture it's also extraordinarily violent yes. when, when the violence comes it's it's kind of pin you in your seat in a way that uh that the Coens just do so well and the movement of the camera and the I- incredible sets, uh, the rooms, a lot of this takes place is interiors. In fact, a fairly claustrophobic film mm. where where stuff is happening in these rooms. These men are having these conversations and, you know, sometimes bullets are going through walls, but but a lot of it is just talk and it's incredibly gripping. And I, I happen to know the, that it was shot, I think it was in New Orleans. So the, the moments where it is outside, you get a little bit of that sort of soupy, swampy New Orleans yeah. vibe, uh, which is also amazing. Uh, and all those old buildings in New Orleans. Well, I mean, you know, the scene where Turturro's pleading for his life uh, is, you know, for most, I mean, that's sort of the key moment in the film plot-wise, and it's what they used for the poster. And, sure. And, uh, you know, it's pretty pretty unforgettable, and Turturro's amazing. Uh, uh, but, the, you know, and it's, it's set in those, those woods that just, you know, every autumn I think about it. But uh, it's, um, you know, it's just one of many kind of just gorgeous kind of woody picture woody flavored kind of scenes i just i can't get the look of this film out of my head yeah yeah and they and uh, all of those little parts of the various guys uh, you know the the italian mobsters and the the, the choice the, that's one thing the coens do so well is in their casting they just they choose the right faces and the, to to say those words those words those unbelievably <laughs> uh evocative words and uh yeah, and if you haven't seen uh, Miller's Crossing and you're a fan of gangster movies, then then it's the next one on your list. It's got to be. So uh, we know Brian De Palma as a director who came to prominence in the 70s. One of those guys who, who people absolutely love, uh, and he's always been kind of an edgy provocative filmmaker, someone who has worn his Hitchcock influences on his sleeve in a lot of his films. Definitely. Uh, but he has made, I guess you could say he's made three classic gangster movies. And I think, I, I hopefully that 
that is, uh, I, I like to think Scarface has become a classic, though it was absolutely panned when it first arrived in cinemas. People hated this film mm. critically. They absolutely hated it. I, it's rare to see a Hollywood movie rise to such prominence after having been totally, you know, uh, slagged upon first arrival. And, and Scarface is an incredible film to see. And of course, and then he did uh, The Untouchables, which is a much more mainstream, less, uh, you know, it's still a violent movie, but it, it's uh, it's got much more of that prestige kind of quality to it. And the third movie I'd like to say is Carlito's Way, and maybe that's the one that is the least well-known. Uh, and he teams him up again with uh, Al Pacino. And here he... Uh, you know, he was played Cuban in uh, in Scarface, and here he's from Puerto Rico, and he is a uh, he's it's set in the 1970s. So so there's that kind of element to it. There's a period element to it. Uh, now it's not as dangerous as Scarface, but it's also not as mainstream as The Untouchables, uh, and it, it really shows De Palma's gift in terms of st- st- setting up the scenes and uh, these incredible. Uh, movement of the camera and every everything just kind of sings in a way that 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 sucks you in and you can't look away. And then you know you got you got Pacino again playing a a character who in this case he's someone who has just gotten out of jail and he wants to try and go straight. This is a story, of course, we've heard many times, but but uh, everyone around him wants him to return to his life of crime and uh, and he can't resist it he can't stay away <laughs> from these guys and again you know it's another story about loyalty and loyalty to your friends and and uh, and loyalty to the people that that uh, helped you at a, at a key point in your life yeah I, I have to say of the, of the three films it's probably the best I scarface I'm kind of gone cold on it's it's a film that uh, I find kind of hard to watch now really, <laughs> really? how come I just I don't know I uh, it's it's weird how the the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth on this film. Like it, initially it was hated by critics, and then people kind of it became kind of a cult favorite, and now it's kind of swung back the other way. And I I don't know. It just it's it feels overblown to me at this point. I I should go back and rewatch it. I I just uh, I just found it kind of ham fisted the last time I saw it, and you know it I, I think it probably maybe a Oliver Stone screenplay just kind of bludgeons me over the head. I have, <laughs> I have issues with that guy too. But, right. but um, you know, I, I don't think it's a film that's particularly aged well. I think part of it, when I actually went to Miami and just saw Scarface stuff everywhere, I just I just felt like the whole world had kind of missed the point of this film anyway. But, right. uh, um, you know, just seeing like you could buy these, these framed, it looked like a giant picture of Tony Montana, but then it would have like, like a cigar and a, like a, a fake thousand dollar bill and a gun in there all in a frame together. Right. Just that kind of nonsense. I, <laughs> right. I, uh, you know, it, it might be, it might be a case of like, you know, it's not the band I hate, it's the fans <laughs> right. in, the, in the case of this film, but, <laughs> okay, but fair enough. It's, uh, you know, it, I mean the whole film, I can probably play the whole film out of my memory. I, I've, I've seen it enough times, mm-hmm. but it just, and what about the untouchables? Is that one that you, the untouchables is one that I watched, uh, a few, well, maybe not a few months ago, but probably last year I rewatched it and, uh, I still enjoy it. I, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those better Costner performances. Um, he's perfect as Elliot Ness. Uh, you know, I have some issues with the whole, the way prohibition in Canada is portrayed. It's, it's like <laughs> yeah. that has no basis yeah. in reality. Yeah. Um, but you know, just pop it, having De Niro pop up as Capone for, mm-hmm. for a few scenes is kind of kind of great and the whole Sean Connery uh, you know they bring a knife you bring a gun yes. kind of kind yes. of s- speech I, I'm a sucker for that I'm a you know I, and I, I just like I, I like the the tone of it you know just that that kind of again that kind of weird woodsy warm tone that the same as Miller's Crossing um, only this time in Chicago I I uh, you know it was a st- at the time that I first saw it it was a story I was unfamiliar with I hadn't seen the TV show with uh, Robert right. Stack at that point so um, you know I, I felt it was one of the better representations of that whole legend even though it doesn't have a whole lot in common with what actually went down historically but but uh i i felt it was the right balance of like strong characters and you know bravura from filmmaking and scenes like the shootout in the train station and a lot kind of stuff um but uh without anyone really overplaying their hand like i mean i think capone was kind of an outsized character anyway uh but uh so de niro is kind of perfect for that and he's a good contrast to uh costner's kind of stern taciturn uh elliot ness right for sure 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 um and then you got you know connery is an irish right. cop kind of thing so i you know I, I for some reason i feel it's 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 aged a lot better plus it's got that great Eddie morricone score yeah the score is amazing the the giorgio moroder music in scarface just kind of 
timestamps it so clearly. <laughs> uh, I can't remember who did the score in Carlito's Way, actually, off the top of my head. But uh, but it, yeah, it works neither. really well. Of course, the fact that it's set in the 70s means there's lots Th- of disco. There's lots of period music yeah. and, and well used. I, th- I always yeah. thought Brian De Palma was really smart about how he used music in his films. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, even just using the right composers, like was it Pino Dinaggio for for Carrie and so on. Right. And, and uh, you know, I, I now I want to look back at who did the music for Carlito's Way. I think there's a lot of uh, like you say, a lot of disco and a lot of sort of smart, kind of lesser-known urban disco tracks. Yeah. Now, I should mention uh, Carlito's Way also, aside from the great costumes in the 70s look and everything, uh, which was actually a pretty unusual for the early 90s. The 70s weren't far enough away, I guess. I, I just It was surprising to see a film set so lushly set in New York of the 70s. But um, Yeah, Boogie Nights kind of became the big 70s Yeah, that's right. That, but. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but there's some great cameos. Viggo Mortensen is, is terrific in a small, weaselly role before he became a star. And John Leguizamo, as well as Benny Blanco, uh, who turns out to have a pretty key part uh, later on as an up-and-coming badass uh, uh, <laughs> drug dealer criminal dude uh, yeah so so but you know Pacino is wonderful and and uh, he he acts opposite Penelope Ann Miller who's actually quite good in the film and uh, I would say I gotta say though having watched it again recently the highlight of the movie Sean Penn's hair <laughs> that fro yeah it's like not until I don't think until Christian Bale in American Hustle as an actor had such truly awful hair and, <laughs> and being such a key uh, part of the story now Penn plays plays Pacino's um, lawyer and he gets him out of jail sort of on a technicality and and it's funny because in the beginning of the film he's set up as kind of this heroic character who's who's become confident he he might have been been weaselly years ago but now he's got his his he got himself together uh unfortunately we learn he really hasn't he's got a serious drug problem and he owes money to all the worst people and and he's the one who basically gets Pacino's character uh, Carlito back into serious trouble uh, and the final sequence in Grand Central Station is uh, another another uh, De Palma film where it ends with a shootout in, yes. a, in a train station uh, <laughs> very, after the Untouchables yeah is still great it's really a wonderful moment the suspense at that point is absolutely white knuckle and uh yeah, I think I think Carlito's way is worth a revisit. Um, I just I just yeah. did uh, some IMDbing and I see that uh, Jelly Bean Benitez, who is uh, Madonna's early collaborator, mm-hmm. um, was the music supervisor. So, right. so obviously they picked the right guy to to pick the tunes. Yeah. Um, now we should before we wrap up here uh, and we we leave the world of gangsters behind. Uh, definitely, we should tip the hat to the African American gangster pictures of the '90s. And it occurs to me that a lot of the black exploitation films of the '70s were gangster movies. Really, I mean they they uh, well, they crime dramas certainly. Um, but uh, but yeah, I remember maybe because I was a little young to remember a lot of black exploitation flicks. Though I've seen a few since then, uh, I certainly remember how it seemed like every few months there was another, uh, you know, sort of hip-hop uh, gangster picture coming out uh, from Boys in the Hood to New Jack City, uh, Dead Presidents, uh, Menace to Society. There was a whole series of them through the mid-90s, and uh, and they were pretty awesome. I, 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 uh, I, I remember enjoying them, and it's, it's I mean, how, how much these stories were based on actual events that uh, I didn't know, uh, but I certainly appreciated the 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 genre and the grit in these in these these pictures. Yeah, like the black exploitation films of the seventies, there was certainly uh, a weird element of a certain amount of fantasy and a certain amount of reality kind of colliding. Uh, certainly, a film like New Jack City is very much that ilk. O- oddly enough, a lot of those uh, black action films of the seventies were remakes of older, <laughs> like Black Caesar with uh, Fred Williamson was uh, a remake of Little Caesar, basically. Right, sure. Except uh, they had a sequel, whereas Little Caesar actually died at the end of his film. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> whereas uh, Black Caesar came back in Hell Up in Harlem, um, and there's actually a. Uh, black action remake of Get Carter called Hitman. Wow. Which which is, I, I remember I saw it on TCM and it actually was it's like, this plot seems really familiar. <laughs> like where this guy's trying to avenge his brother's death and he's kind of making his way through this mob in, around Oakland, California. Um, and uh, sure enough, yeah, it was just a straight up remake of, of Get Carter done in uh, a black community in uh, Northern California. So, you know, so, you know, they obviously took some inspiration from those films. But, but uh, obviously they put a new, you know, a new sheet on the on these uh, these stories with the, the films of the 90s and uh, I, got, I gotta say the Hughes brothers 
Brothers films are probably my favorite of the bunch. I think they're the ones that stand up the best too. Right. Uh, just in terms of their use of music and the acting, uh, uh, Menace to Society and Pre- Dead Presidents are, are two films I can still watch today. Dead Presidents, I don't. I mean, it was kind of a flop at the time. It was kind of like a big period heist movie, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really effective. I saw it in the theater and and um, you know have watched it since on video and. I, it's it's a really strong film that I don't think got its due, um, right. and I kind of I kind of wish the Hughes brothers were still kind of in force. I think they they have made a couple of films sort of more recently, but they nothing have. that's gotten the kind of attention that those did. I think for some reason they, they then they did From Hell, an adaptation of the Jack the Ripper comic book by yeah, Alan Moore. Alan Moore, and, sure, uh, with with Johnny Depp. Yeah, <laughs> this, they bring yeah full circle right here. But but uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I I thought it was reasonably well done. I thought I, I liked the comic, and I thought they they did justice to it. At the time, one of the few Alan Moore properties that actually is does well does well in the in well, film in, form. In, but in this, we disagree. I, I felt oh, okay. like well. as a as a <laughs> as a as a fan of of Alan Moore's work, and and I have some. Uh, I, I thought they did a reasonably good job of some of his other stuff, but I just felt like like the key problem with the film version of From Hell is that uh, that they made it a whodunit, and the comic book is told from yeah, the perspective of the killer, of the killer, yeah. the killer, and I just didn't see the point in it other than to try and make something a little more conventional because, frankly, I mean, that comic is so grim it is truly a look into the heart of darkness yeah and i don't i just everything about the movie felt a little too glossy for me well aside my only real fault with it was heather graham felt really really miscast but anyway we're kind of off base yes at this point but <laughs> yeah. but um yeah. but uh i must watch it again i remember really liking it at the time and i think oh. i actually watched it before i read the comics so that might be my problem because i did go. read the comic afterwards and quite quite uh i was quite enthralled i went through a big ripper phase for a while there <laughs> uh, but uh uh you know i i thought oh, well, they still made a pretty good film with that one yeah but, uh but it's a yeah, it's a shame that they've kind of fallen by the wayside. Well, it's it strikes me that uh, you mentioned Dead Presence being a heist movie, and that is another genre that parallels gangster movies. There are some gangster movies that are heist movies. If I thought about The Killing, for instance, the Kubrick. Oh picture. sure, yeah. I mean that is kind of a gangster movie, but it's mostly a heist movie. And I wouldn't. I, I actually considered it for this conversation, but I think I'll save it for <laughs> whenever we do. A, there's got to be another heist movie coming down the road. Well, yeah, and I mean there's gangs, and then there's organized gangs and organized <laughs> yeah. crime. you know it's, it's, there's so many different pockets of, of 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 the crime movie that you can get into but um uh certainly things like uh like menace society i mean i guess new jack city is the most closest to being like an actual organized crime film set in the black community and uh i, I you know even just the title new jack tells me it probably doesn't stand up quite as well as it did when it first came out <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears, our look at a few of the great and lesser-known American gangster movies. Here's us hoping your Tommy guns never jam. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lens Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.